that was the potential energy which I converted into money. And then I thought, okay, I don't, I can stop now really building up my potential energy. But there's other, what you always have to keep on building. You can't ever stop going to the gym. You always have to keep building on your health every day. If I say, okay, I'm healthy enough now, I'm just gonna eat popcorn for the rest of my life. You'll, you'll be unhealthy very fast. And that's essentially what happened. This is James Altucher. I'm here with my good friend Jay Shetty on his show. I'm taking it over for a second. Jay, what made you finally decide you're going to stop everything and go three three years? I don't know if you intended initially three years. What made you decide to go the path of the monk? What, leave it or join? Join. Do I get to introduce you first or do we go straight into this question? We just go straight into this we question. We go straight into this question and then I introduce yes. you. Yes. So I have to find a clever way. Yes. So what made me leave? You have to segue into introducing <laughs> I me. I love it. It's okay, a challenge. Brilliant. This is great. <laughs> this is already what I thought it was going to be. So it's already crazy. I love it. Okay. So the question is, why did what, I leave? Yeah, just that, that pinnacle moment. What was the point where you said, God damn it, I'm going to go and be a monk in India for three years? Okay. I actually decided that when I was 18, I met a monk, blew my mind. He was the first person that I met. How did he blow your mind? He blew my mind because he was the first person that I met that I thought was successful and happy. When I was 18, everyone that I'd met, I'd met many successful people. I hadn't met many happy people. I'd definitely not met many people that I thought were both. He was someone that went from something to nothing in the sense that he went to IIT. He'd achieved every material qualification you possibly could at his age. And then he decided to trade that oil for a life of service. And that for me was what deeply inspired me because I thought, wait, that's really noble. Like who gives up a life of wealth, success, fame, power for service? Like how does that even happen? And so I started spending every one of my summer holidays, basically my first AB test, I'd spend half of it at an investment bank or a consulting company where I thought I'd end up. And I'd spend the other half living as a monk in India. And after four years of testing that from 18 to 22, while being at, while being at Cass Business School, at 22, I decided it was time. So I decided in my heart at 18, kept doing everything an 18 year old does till 22. And then at 22, decided to, to actually make the actual move. So what, what sacrifices do you think you made? Did you consider in your mind that you were making when you, made, when you decided to full force go and be a monk? Like, were you giving up on a relationship? Were you getting job offers? Like, what sacrifices were you aware of that you consciously made? And were there any that were difficult for you? If I'm completely honest, I never saw them as sacrifices. They never have ever felt like sacrifices. It, it never once came to my mind or occurred that I felt I was giving something up when I, did, when I made the decision. So there were, I broke off a relationship with a girl. I gave up my corporate job offers. I had two job offers that I, that I declined. I, I tried to, I think I tried to actually, what do you call it? defer one of them for a year because I wasn't sure. I was like, oh, maybe I should be safe. But then I, then I didn't do that either. And so I turned down two job offers. And I also obviously moved away from my family. I never went to my graduation. I graduated, but never went. So my mom never got the picture of me holding my, my degree, which till this day, she reminds me of that. She does not have a picture of me holding my degree. And of you course, should dress up. I should dress up. And do it. I don't look the same though. I used to have, <laughs> yeah, I look, I look different. <laughs> we've aged uh so and and then i gave up obviously the perception and opinions of people around me a lot of my fellow friends just thought i was absolutely crazy 
and that I'd gone nuts. My extended family were completely confused. So because they I didn't get, know when you were coming back either. Absolutely. So the biggest thing I sacrificed was what people thought of me, and that was a really, really awesome thing that happened at that age. That the ability to just wanting to follow my intuition and my dreams and not wondering whether anyone thought it was cool or interesting or useful. And at that time, definitely, I'd say 99.9% of people did not think anything that I was about to do was interesting or useful or or cool in any way. I mean, now you're doing, you've created a lot of content, you've gotten a billion views on social media. Uh, do you ever feel that, do you still feel like you don't completely uh, think about what other people think or have you integrated it back in in a different way than you think other people have it? I think, I think about what other people think when it comes to content because ultimately the goal or the heart or soul of my content is to serve and help people. So if it's not serving and helping them, then it doesn't matter. So I always talk about how I feel creators can either be selfish or sell out. And most creators can be either end of the spectrum. So selfish creators are creators who say, I just create for myself. I don't care whether anyone likes it or not. I'm just creating for myself. And if you're a creator like that, you've got to be okay with the fact that most people will never ever read, watch, or consume your work. And if you're okay with that, that's amazing. That's beautiful. But you have to realize that you're basically creating just for yourself. And sellout creators are creators that only create for the public. They're like, oh, what's the next trend? Or oh, what's right. the next thing I've got to do to pander to my audience? And that, again, you don't feel fulfilled because you're not creating from your heart. You're just creating from your head what, what makes strategic sense. So for me, it's, it's being in the middle. For me, I've found that middle ground with my content where I am creating things that I genuinely believe in, are meaningful to me, that connect with me but also are aimed at serving people, helping people and connecting with people. So that's how I've kind of at least made sense of it to myself in my own head. And obviously you've done it successfully, like billions of views, I mean, must feel good. It does, it does. And I'm really open about that. It's when I started this journey, I actually just sent a radio clip for an interview in London where they're doing a series on if your goal is to become Instagram famous, what will happen? And I was talking about how like when I started making videos, I never thought it would be a full-time thing. I just thought I'd be one of those people who spend their evenings and weekends making videos to share with the world. I never had any dream of it ever getting this big. I never visioned that. I never had it on a vision board. I never wrote it down or anything. So for me, I just feel extremely humbled and, and blessed and grateful that my work is connected with, yeah, in, in the last 18 months, as you say, we've had over three and a half billion views. And, and for me, that's mind blowing. I never ever thought I'd be able to have that type of impact, so. Well, it's interesting because you have, you have the, the, the you know, two great uh, situations on your side. One is you have a story to tell that's very different and unique. And the other is you have a message that can go along with it. So they, it's like the double helix of DNA and, and you need, you need the double. You can't have a single helix and create life. I'm glad, you, did, I'm glad you didn't life. say the English accent. I thought you were going to say it's the British accent. I, I oh, often, yeah, the, I often the hear British that. British accent. Oh, and his <laughs> eyes are so wonderful. I see that on the YouTube comments. So you have that, you have that double helix <laughs> No, as well. I appreciate it. You went, you went far deeper. So I'm very grateful to hear that. And no, I, I mean, honestly, James, I, I'm so grateful and I'm so overwhelmed and humbled by it all. It's, it's far beyond anything I ever planned for. And, and I'm continuing to operate in the same way as I did when I started. I've, I've not changed my intention or my goals. It's, it's exactly the same as it was. 
Yeah, um, that's good because then you can sort of um, question each piece of content. Like, does it fit? You know, or well, well, well. That's an interesting question. Should content always fit uh, a checklist that you say, okay, it's got to do this, this, and this? Sometimes content takes its own form. Yeah. And how do you? I'm far more spontaneous with content. I, I just feel like things can be inspired from a conversation or something mm. random I read on an advert on the street. It doesn't need to necessarily be something that... I've, I've always ideas for me. I've, I've realized that my content takes, if there was a formula to it, has three key components. So one of the first ones is all of my content is based on a piece of research or a study that I've read. And I'm fascinated by human behavior. So I'm constantly reading about human behavior. So when I read a study and I think, oh, wow, that's interesting. Let me see how that plays true in real life experience. And then I'll be speaking with a friend or, or speaking to a new person that I've just met or hearing from an old friend. And then I'll be thinking about that study and how it's playing through that human behavior. And then finally, I'll try and find a solution or a piece of wisdom from what I learned as a monk. So mm. I'll try and find some truth, some old ancient truth or timeless truth that can help put it all together. And that's kind of what my content approach has been of creation. And that's allowed me to be able to be more systematic and strategic around content when I need to and find constant source of inspiration. But at the same time, I could literally hear one thing from you today. And I actually had that the other day when I was interviewing someone, I was interviewing Mario Goetze, who plays for the German national football team in Germany, literally five days ago. And he said something, I was like, I'm gonna make a video out of that. And it was just as simple as that. So that's interesting. So you'll take, you, so, so I see these videos of you all the time. And uh, so you'll have a takeaway from, from an interview maybe, and that might inspire like one of, one of these great videos I see from you. Absolutely. And, and for me, it's meditating on that idea so that it's been realized in my own way, as opposed to, oh, that's a cool idea. It sounds good. It will look good. It's more, have I actually realized in my own way that that phrase or that idea, has it been realized as opposed to, has it been theorized? Let me ask you this, because often I see you talk about the idea and and you have great stories and metaphors and and things that you've picked up that you're able to, that you say to express the idea, but often you don't say your story when expressing the idea. You don't say there was this time I was in India and this happened and that made me think of this, probably because you're in this ongoing period of learning things. But, uh, you know, do you ever think that, oh, if you're just expressing the idea, but without your story, is that is that a little too almost selfish to use your word? where I think, where you think people are going to listen to me just because I'm saying it as opposed to establishing my own story along, alongside the idea. I think for me, it's interesting because I think my initial content, I became recognized for my ideas before people knew my story. So actually when my content mm. first broke through, a lot of people were like, who is this guy anyway? He's so young. What does he even know? Uh, that's what the critics were saying. And a lot of people were just like, we love how Jay thinks. For me, it was never intentional to break through. So I never really even had time to, to consciously think that through. And so if I'm looking at it from a hindsight point of view, my take is I also am careful about the medium through which you share your story. And so right now I'm working on my book. And for me, my book is a perfect medium to share the depths of my story. I think a lot of my stories are better in written form than in spoken form. Yeah. That's probably true. I think that yeah. that's where you could play with, with your story and how to express it.
but it's something that's taken me a while to just really reflect on all my experiences, to really go back there, live them. And I want people to live them with me. I don't just want people to hear them. And I think I have to relive them first to want the audience to relive them with me as opposed to just tell them. And, and yeah, and I think, know. I don't know how you're starting the book, but if I were you, and this is- to, Please, no, you're, no, a, just you're take a this writer, advice yeah. with a grain of salt. I'm just thinking how I would write it if I were you. I'm not saying you should do sure, this. Sure, sure, sure. I'm just thinking if I were you, I would probably find that moment in India where I was just, you know, thigh deep in mud and just everything's miserable and you're missing your family and what are you doing? And someone just yelled at you because even monks yell occasionally. Yes. And you're just filled with regret. That's probably how I would start it. I'm visualizing the situation right now. I remember exactly where I was. Because then, <laughs> then you leave the audience with, well, he did it and I'm reading this book for a reason because I like what he says and he's been a monk, but it's good for them to know that there's, there's always uncertainty. There's always you know things that are not fit together the way you think that they're going to be. The puzzle, the, the puzzle pieces don't always you know, build the picture. I'm going to have to get you to interview me before I carry on writing. I'm, I'm already thinking. I'm interviewing you right now. Yeah, I know, I know. But this is, yeah, you've got me thinking. That's a beautiful piece of advice. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're and, welcome. And I love it. Yeah, I, I can think of a moment that I don't even think I was going to put in the book. So you've, you've definitely inspired me. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because the, the sacrifice you made and then coming back, what made you decide to come back? Those three things. Uh, the first thing was I came to a personal self-awareness realization that I didn't, fit in with being a monk. So I had an independent rebellious streak of wanting to share what I was learning in a very specific and particular way. And I wanted to dedicate my life to that. And that wasn't necessarily what an ashram or a monastery facilitates. A, a monastery and an ashram is also a place of accordance, of discipline, of, of some form of conformity and, and coming together and, and giving up sometimes personal desires for a overall higher goal. And for me, that was just too hard to do because the calling and want of wanting to share the message in a particular way was so high for me and so deep in my gut that I knew that if I didn't try that, I'd, I'd live forever in regret. That was a huge one. Well, obviously you're a blend of two cultures. You were Indian, Indian parents. When did your parents come to London? My mother moved to London when she was 16. From India? From actually Yemen. My mom grew mm. up in Yemen and moved to England to keep her British passport when Yemen uh, got back its independence. And then my father moved to England from India for, to London when he married my mom when I think he was like 26, 28 or something like that. So you're, so you're a product of all these cultures. The ashram style of living just might not have been, it was there for you, but maybe not all the way at the core. And people always say, particularly people say to people who meditate, oh, what... What's your practice? Is it, you know, Vipassana? Is it Zen? Is it Tibetan or Vedic? Uh, what they miss out, and then they say, well, they, then they say something stupid usually, which is like, oh, well, did you get Nirvana? Did you get enlightened? Which doesn't mean anything. But they forget, forget the key word was that they asked you what your practice was. What are you, they don't think, what are you practicing for? And what you were practicing for was to come back here and, and share these things that you've learned. And the word practice is the key part. Nobody, meditation is not the goal. It's the practice for the, for the other 22 hours of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I, was, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was practicing for two things. One was purification. I really felt that 
being a monk would allow me access to accelerate my growth to the virtues, values, and characteristics that I thought were so important. So when I would hear about humility, or I would hear about integrity, or I would hear about detachment, I was fascinated by these qualities as a 18 year old. And I just thought, wow, well, if I go into the real world and if I get a real job, how am I ever gonna have time to think about humility, integrity, and all of these values and virtues? So I was like, okay, it's gonna give me time to purify myself and become self-aware that I can try at least to develop some of this. And the second one was, it's gonna give me time to study, realize and live the knowledge so that one day I can share it, so that one day I can pass it on. So you're, you're spot on, those were the two. And that's still why I meditate. I still meditate for those same two things. One, to purify myself of all the envy, greed, illusion, all of the things that I believe are toxic and negative from my life. And then for me to able to have the integrity to share what I'm sharing. And we, you probably also were curious, like after three years being immersed in this life, What's going to be like using my oh. new personality, Trust <laughs> my me. new skills in my brain to back in the, in the quote oh unquote my, real world? I was scared. It was so scary coming back because I moved back when I was about 26 years old into my parents' home again. I had no money. I had my student debt to pay off, which I know we can talk about. But I had my British student debt, which is not as bad as it is in the US, but I still had it. And I had to refigure out what I was gonna do. And it was strange because I was like, oh my God, am I gonna have to make money again? Am I gonna have to be in a relationship again? Like what's normality? And it took me about nine to 10 months of just reading books, studying, trying things out, self-reflection, journaling to just be able to operate again mm. in, in a normal capacity. Were your parents pushing you to like, hey, you know, Jay, get out of here, like, get, <laughs> no, get Indian, a job, Indian, Indian parents, out. Indian parents will happily keep their kids in their home till 40 if they have to. Uh, it's, it's quite common that Indian kids will spend their time in their parents' homes till 25, 30 or until they get married. So my parents weren't pushy at all and they were quite happy. At first they were like, why are you back? Because we just got used to you being away. And then it was kind of like, oh, you're back. Like, you know, they were excited to have me back. So yeah, my parents are very liberal and flexible. They're amazing, so yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I want to switch it back to you now All because right. I kind of, I feel like I've, uh, I've just been, yeah, that was- I've that just was, been curious. Thank it's you. It's all about curiosity, I right? know, I know, but I'm curious about you and I feel like, but you've definitely got me thinking. That's, I feel like for everyone who's listening and watching right now, you've just been shown the brilliance of James Altitude because not only, not only have you hijacked the interview, which is okay, <laughs> what's, what's more interesting is that you've, you've definitely got me to reflect more deeply about a lot of things. So oh, I, good. I'm excited to that, be- that was, that, that, that was a high bar. <laughs> yeah, but, so. I'm, but I'm excited to be interviewed by you at depth. And I think it will benefit me a lot, if, even if it doesn't benefit anyone else. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'll take that, I'll take that. But thank you, James, thank you so much. I'm gonna switch it back now, if I may. You've just been watching what's meant to be an interview with one of the most successful entrepreneurs, writers, thinkers, angel investors. I'm more fascinated than even all of his success, fascinated by the way he thinks, his incredible beliefs, extreme lifestyle choices, and sometimes counterintuitive and controversial thoughts. I'm really, really intrigued by the way James makes decisions, the way James makes choices. And today's guest is James Altucher, who has just introduced me and interviewed me for all of you. But I really, really want to share him, his story, his values, views, and beliefs with every single one of you. I think we're all gonna learn an insane amount today. 
So thank you so much, James. Well, Jay, thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> I was very flattered to be asked to be on this. I said to Steve, the podcast producer, are you sure? Jay Shetty asked me to be on his podcast and here we are. You're so humble and kind. It's it's incredible and it's it's beautiful to see that. Humility is the quality I find most endearing. So Can we record that for my kids? I'm going to send that to them. <laughs> they don't believe that. They don't believe you're humble? Well, I don't know. I think, you know, teenagers live their own lives and they, they kind of peer out of one set of eyes to see what their parents are doing, but they, they, it's not it's not necessarily the most important thing sure. happening. They're just, they're paying attention and observing. They're not necessarily, and they'll judge negatively. They won't necessarily judge positively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't have children yet, but I've accepted the fact that my children will not think I'm cool in any way possible. What helps is when your kids' friends think you're cool. Right. Then, then you win. Okay. So I've been able to do that to some extent. So that's been your, your yeah. Tip. W- one time, <laughs> one time, this was right after I had this period where I threw out all of my belongings and I was just living in Airbnbs. And my kids' friends' parents were reading my blog post about this time, and their friends were coming up to them and saying, "You know, Josie, is your, is your daddy homeless?" And she was really scared. She's like, "Daddy, are you homeless?" And I said, no, why don't you visit me? And I was staying in an, an, an Airbnb and it was a pretty nice Airbnb. And she was like, okay, you're definitely not homeless. You're just, this is just strange and unusual. So she, knew, she had enough common sense to know it was a little bit off, off beat. Yeah, but it was a choice. It was yeah. a choice you made. And, I, and I'm fascinated by some of your choices. You said that in 1994, when you moved to New York, you wanted to be everyone and everything. And I feel that's so true today for so many people, especially a lot of my community, people that ask me questions. How have you started there and then started to create more of an identity where you're able to define yourself or whether maybe even that was never the goal? Yeah, I don't know if that was ever the goal in the sense that, you know, I've made a lot of, it wasn't like a very straight path. I made a lot of, a huge number of mistakes along the way. So I always thought I had different different goals. When I moved to New York, I wanted to write a novel. I wanted to make a TV show. I had nothing to do with business. And then, you know, New York just fascinated me. Like, oh, everything, every corner I turned on seemed like a story. And I just wanted to hear everybody's story. And I became fascinated by that. And, um, but then purely by accident, I stumbled into starting a business and selling it. And then I got like almost obsessed with money when I had never been obsessed with money before. And of course, obsession never has a good end. And I lost all this money and that created all sorts of problems and up and down, up and down. I made money, I lost money, I made money, I lost money. And I think through that, I sort of figured out finally what was working uh, more on the way up and what was not working on the way down. And I kind of started focusing on, hey, let's just stick to what's working and leave behind what's not working. But it took, it took a good long time to sort of come to that realization. And I, but I was always interested, even from, from the beginning, I was always interested in, not consciously, but I always had very, uh, very strict, not strict, I had very intense opinions about what was going on. And I, and, and I was very serious always about executing on those opinions. So in 1994, nobody knew what 
really the web was. But for me, I thought like, oh my gosh, this is going to be huge. And I remember I was working at HBO at the time and they were working on creating an interactive TV project. And that was my job was to, I knew software, I was a software guy at that time. And uh, my job was to create their interactive TV for HBO. And they were doing it through cable lines. And I said to my boss, why don't you try this thing called the web? Here's this browser called Netscape. And maybe you could stream, you know, there wasn't really streaming video, but you could download video and then um, watch it on a web browser. And then it's, you just have to hand out this software to everybody. You don't have to create from scratch all the networking, all the interfaces, the set top boxes, the whole thing. And he, I remember specifically, he said to me, James, 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 whenever someone says your name three times, by the way, (laughs) they're about to insult you. He said, James, 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 uh, let, I think the cable guys know a little bit more than you about what the future holds for entertainment. So, so why don't you let them do their job and you just code it up? And (laughs) of course their project failed and, and the web, you know, became huge, but that's when I stumbled into, again, it was several years later, but I stumbled into my first company was, uh, creating websites for corporations that did not have, uh, websites. So I made americanexpress.com, timewarner.com, and then my company, and you can maybe just tell by the by the way I look, my company specialized in websites for gangster rap music labels. <laughs> so we did them all. Like we, we have a picture of Tupac on the wall. That was uh, Interscope and Death Row Records. We did their websites. Uh, oh, wow. did Loud Records, Bad Boy Records, uh, Jive. Uh, we did all the record label websites. So that was my first company. But before that... I, I, I really was uh, obsessed with, I wanted to create a TV show for HBO. That's why, why I originally moved to the city and I had strong opinions of what that should be and then strong opinions about what my business should be. And then I started to have strong opinions about how much money I should be worth. And that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> so. Wow, what an incredible story. And what was it that in before 94 that even made you move there? What were you like before 94? Well, I had, I had gone to graduate school for computer science at a place called Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was thrown out of graduate school because I was, all I would do was write, I, I wrote minimum of 3,000 words a day. That was my goal. I would write 3,000 words a day, every single day. And of course that meant failing all of my classes and then getting thrown out of graduate school, but I was still a good programmer. So I would take jobs programming and we would use the web back in when it was invented, we were using it to solve problems. And uh, I got really good at that style of programming, which became the universal style of programming everywhere. But this was before anybody was doing it. And uh, and at the same time, being a programmer, I'd program like a half hour a week, do, do my job. And then just my job was to just maintain the software I'd written. And then I would write fiction the rest of the day. But then I was watching so much HBO and I loved it, I decided I'm gonna go work at HBO. And uh, I arranged for myself to get an interview there. Uh, I totally failed every part of the interview. My boss, his (laughs) boss, his boss, and his boss all asked me questions that I couldn't answer about computers. And here I had gone undergrad for computer science and graduate school in computer science. And then I had worked for four years as a programmer. I was a good computer programmer. I failed every interview. And so I leave HBO 
And I was so disappointed. I thought, okay, that's it. I'm not going to be able to move to New York City and I'm not gonna, I'm not going to get a job here. And I went to the park and I saw a guy I've known for years at the park and we played chess. There was a bunch of chess tables. And then the guy who was potentially going to be my boss's boss's boss, I suddenly saw he was watching the game. I happened to have, I was, he turned out he was a good chess player and I happened to then win that game. And uh, we took a walk around the park and he offered me a job right there. So that's a, so I didn't know anything, but because he liked, you know, because we took this walk and he, he liked the way I played chess, he offered me this, this job that, that I then leveraged into pitching TV shows to HBO and doing their website. And I leveraged that into starting a company, making websites for other entertainment companies and so on. Like often you have an interest and you can't, you, as you grow in that interest, you don't, you, it's hard to have a goal in the beginning because you don't know what your new knowledge is going to teach you in terms of changing your goals. So what I always try to do is I have an interest. I never really think of the end goal because I assume that my the new knowledge is going to change the end goal. And then I try to leverage it as far as I can. Mm. So I leveraged it in terms of TV shows. I leveraged it in terms of starting a company. And of course, along the way, you have to also find some kind of personal life balance, which I did not do. Mm. And that took many, many years to do. Yeah, and leading forward from that, you, you mentioned that you got obsessed with money. When you started to get obsessed with money, what did you notice change about you and your choices? Uh, it was weird. When I had no money, I thought I was rich because, oh, I have no money, but I'm making a TV show for HBO. And I have no money, but I don't know, I'm, I'm doing websites for, uh, you know, the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> and uh, uh, I have no money, but... You know, I'm, I'm, I was really, I felt like, an, I thought I was doing things that I love. So I felt, and I never worried about money. I was by myself and um, I was living in a, a beautiful building, a very historic building in New York that had lots of artists and creatives. And um, I, uh, I just felt abundant. And then as soon as I had money, that second, I literally felt impoverished. Like I felt totally poor. I, like it was almost like a disease, like a, like a brain disorder that happened in my head. And so the first thing I thought of was, well, how can I make more money because I'm poor now? And even though I had millions and millions of dollars in the bank. And so once you start thinking like that, it's only a matter of time before you make a series of bad decisions that will cost you all of your money. What they are, it doesn't even matter. I spent a lot. I invested poorly. I did all sorts of things with the money that were uncalled for and you know, millions turned into literally, you know, uh, uh, zero. So, or virtually zero. Yeah. And, and obviously now you advise so many people, like incredible people from all different walks of life and backgrounds about money, about business, about entrepreneurship. Do you not feel you had any mentors then to go to or there's no one in your life that could advise you or what advice would you have given yourself? Yeah, that's a good question because I, I was thinking about this the other day. I really didn't have anybody to talk to uh, and nobody was really giving me, nobody was offering any advice either. So I wish I did have someone to talk to. And I also, if, if someone did give me advice, I hope I wouldn't, I hope I would have had the humility to listen to them because I was also pretty arrogant because you think, oh my gosh, I just made $10 million. I'm the smartest person in the world because I did this. Like, 
I never thought this was possible, so I must be great. And uh, but then, of, co- of course, if you're not, if you truly don't feel as if you're great, if you feel insecure and in, in, or you have some hole that needs to be filled, uh, I felt like I needed more money to, to fill that hole to really be great. I was just fooling people. Now I need to really prove it. And that's p- part of this cycle where you feel like you need more and more and more. And I think, again, it took a long time because I, there's three skills to making money. There's making it keeping it, growing it. And I was really good at making it. So I would start a company, I'd build it up, I'd sell it. Okay, then I'd go broke, it'd be the worst thing ever, I would feel suicidal, I'd start from scratch, I'd, I'd then make it, keep it, and then fail to keep it and grow it again. And this happened like three, four, five times. And it took me a long time to realize how to keep it. And and it's very difficult. So if I were to give my advice now, if I were to give someone advice now, I would say, do not, the very first thing is, do not change your lifestyle at all for at least one year. Because let it, let, let money is not the goal. It's kind of a byproduct of living a good, positive, integrated life. And I could describe what that means, but uh, it's just a byproduct of, of, you know, other things happening in your life that are, that are more positive. And when you have it, let it just kind of marinate through you a little bit so that your, your mind, your body, your soul kind of recognizes, okay, this is a new situation, but it's not, it's not the end game. It's just, it just sort of happened. Mm. But instead, year one, I just started gambling and, and investing inappropriately, investing you know, huge amounts that I shouldn't have been, you know, buying homes, spending like crazy. And, you know, just every stupid thing you could think of, I would do. Thank you so much for the honest, honest take on that, because I feel like it's very natural when someone comes into anything in an accelerated form to not know what to do with it. It's like when something comes quickly to us, whether it's a, a skill, a partner, money in this case, we don't necessarily know how to use it. And, and in one sense, you can't blame yourself for that or blame anyone because it's such a human trait that when something comes to us quickly, not easily, but quickly in an accelerated form, it's hard to know how to honor that, keep that, grow that. Yeah, I mean, um, let's, let's play with an analogy yeah. that I've never really played with. Let's do it. So, so, so money is like, is like a kind of energy, say. Mm-hmm. But so is like when you, when you work out in the gym, that also creates a kind of energy, like you're a little bit stronger, so you could lift more, or you could, you know, you're a little healthier in some way because you've been going to the, the gym. But if you stop going to the gym, your muscles <clears throat> will, will go away, You'll out, they'll atrophy. So you can't just sort of like build up to the point where, oh, now I'm lifting 100 pounds with all these reps, uh, and, then, and then say, okay, I don't need to, do that anymore. You know, with money itself is also you build up a you have a certain energy, a certain potential energy that turns into kinetic energy in the form of money. Like that's the the physical realization of this potential energy you build up. So I had built a company that was successful that was really helping a lot of other companies and 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 teaching them how to use this new brand new medium and so on. And that was the potential energy which I converted into money. And then I thought, okay, I don't, I can stop now really building up my potential energy. But there's other, you always have to keep on building 
You can't ever stop going to the gym. You always have to keep building on your health every day. If I say, okay, I'm healthy enough now, I'm just gonna eat popcorn for the rest of my life, you'll, you'll be unhealthy very fast. And that's essentially what happened. Absolutely. This is fascinating for me because I went through a process last year where I had to rewire my relationship with money. I, I grew up believing that, you know, if you wanted to be rich or if you had that ambition to make lots of money, then you, it was a negative ambition and it wasn't the right ambition. And where that came from, I mean, like, there's multiple sources, but that was definitely there in me. And then last year I had to rewire that to really understand how money was just a resource. It was just a tool. It was something that could facilitate growth, et cetera. It was something that could facilitate change as opposed to like you're saying, be the goal. Right, and that's on the flip side after making money. Here's the other thing. Before making money, I realize every single time I've made money, it's because of friendship. Mm -hmm. So it's because of the friends I build up and it's the friends I choose to spend time with as opposed to the people I choose not to spend time with. And that really, you know, that's one thing among many, but it's maybe one of the most important things that ends up helping, you know, we all help each other. And, uh, you know, no man is truly self-made. It's all, you, you find your scene, you find your team. Uh, and, and these people who are in the trenches with you, you make money together or mm. they help you and you help them with their, you know, situations or goals and so on. And, and I think that's what, I would make money and then I would make the wrong friends mm. and then I would lose it. Then I'd have to make the right friends again now I just sort of keep the right friends and build on that. Wow, that Hopefully, is such a not, knock lesson. on wood. Wow, that's a really incredible lesson. Have you ever seen money do the opposite of destroy friendships or take people away? Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. Uh, that's how I would lose often the money is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, fa destroy family, destroy friendships, everything. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that, that also comes with the territory a little bit that people who are around you who are maybe not focused on their personal growth. And I'm not saying I have personal growth. I'm saying I'm focused on it, meaning I hope to grow every day. I don't know. There's no goal to that. I just hope to be better one day than the day before. But people who are not so focused on that, if they see you suddenly change your life circumstances, they're going to maybe not be happy about that. You know, not everybody's happy for your success. Even the, sometimes, you know, people always say, how can I avoid the, the crappy people in my life. The crappy person in your life is never the neighbor down the street who you don't know. It's the person who's, the people who are sometimes right next to you all day long, every day. And so those are sometimes the people you have to be most careful about. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it could be friends, it could be family, it could be coworkers, it could be a mentor who you thought was in favor of your success. Uh, it could be mentees who, liked where you were as a mentor and no longer want and no longer you, you know now they have to see you in a different way mm -hmm. so there, again it's never going to be the strange well it will be sometimes the strangers that hate you but it'll also the, the most dangerous ones are the people who are have been previously close to you but now they're upset that your life circumstances have changed mm. you've talked a lot about I mean, when you came back from when India, sorry to interrupt, when you yeah, came no, back from, from India and you start, you called up your old friends from college and they were like, dude, what's happened to you? Literally. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure not all of them are on your speed dial right now. Oh, uh, definitely not. So many people, <laughs> I actually, I remember 
when I went off to become a monk, one of my best friends, like we were like best friends throughout university. We did all of our coursework together. We studied together, everything. My, my best buddy, he, he literally said, he goes, so you're becoming a monk? And I was like, yeah. He goes, so we can't talk about sex anymore. So I can't be friends with you. And I was just like, really? Like that's what it comes down to. And then when I came back and started to like rekindle and reconnect with a lot of these people, it definitely was tough. Like not everyone wanted to connect, not everyone really understood. And people just think you've gone crazy and then come back. So it's, it's very interesting, but it's also beautiful because those situations are the situations that show you who's really there for you. And it's a cliche, but it's, it's cliche because it's true. Yeah, like and you bad times or times when no one's there for you shows you who's really cares. Yeah, and you can't, you can't keep, there's no, a lot of people keep score. Like you could say to your friend, well, I, you know, we did all these, I did this for you, I did this for you, I did this for you. And they're like, and they're not even returning your calls. Like you can't keep score because the reality is there's no scoreboard. There's no, it's not like, oh, Jay's got 10 points and Alfred's got nine points. So Alfred needs to step up his game a little bit in the third quarter. It's not like that. There's no scoreboard. Alfred's just gone at that point. <laughs> and you have to move on. You have to yeah. keep playing. It's a one-person game and you have to keep playing it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great great piece of advice. Don't, don't keep scores. And I think you're so right that whenever we're doing something good for something or something positive, even if we're subconsciously keeping score, sometimes it's not conscious. But when that person changes or turns our subconscious mechanism for keeping score mm. kind of comes to the fore and we're like, oh, wait a minute, now I remember all the good things I did. Well, and also being aware, and, and this I'm sure it's, it would be nat is natural to you from your meditation experience, being aware, uh-oh, I just kept score. I just counted the score. Mm. That thought right there means that this relationship is, has gone off the rails. Mm. Doesn't mean necessarily mean cut it off, it means something has happened wrong. The second you feel like you are keeping score in a relationship, something's wrong that needs to be recalibrated. That is a brilliant piece of advice. I hope if you're listening and watching, this is like so powerful for relationships. And it's not just, it's friendships, partners, husbands, wives, whatever it is. Business. Like business, business, it applies to everything. Yes, yeah, such great advice. That is awesome. I, I, I'm gonna meditate on that one. So everyone who's listening and watching, highly recommend you meditate on that point in your relationships, wherever you're feeling pain or wherever you're feeling your relationships are off the rails, think about what James just said. It's, it's super powerful. I love that. And, and you know, I don't necessarily know what a, a solution, like sometimes the solution is, okay, I'm not gonna interact with this person anymore. Or I'm gonna take a break from this person. Mm. But let's say you're married and, and you find yourself suddenly in the middle of the night, like I can't believe he or she did this. I've done this, this, and this, but you're married. You can't. You can't just sort of eliminate this person in your life. I think. Uh, I think the key then is to just sort of call it out for what it is. Like to, to you know, next time you have a conversation with the person, you say, um, "Hey, I noticed I was keeping score, and I really don't like feeling that way. You know, what can we do about it?" <laughs> and you know, there might not be an easy solution, but I think you have to kind of call out what is out there, what is in the ether. Because if you're thinking it's the energy between the two of you, it's, it's out there, it's happening. And can you imagine how amazing that would be for the other person to hear that? Like, that would be incredible. If someone ever said that to you, like, sorry, I know I've been keeping score and I know I've been keep telling you about all the amazing, if someone heard that on the other side, I'm hoping that most decent human beings would, would you know, that would resonate with them, that would connect with them and hopefully their response would be transformed. Yeah, I, so. I, I think so because I think, I think just you know, 
information is power, right? And so uh, well, that's a saying, but it's it's true. And so what is information? It's not just facts. It's everything that's going on. You just meet someone on the subway. There's information going back and forth between the two of you. Um, now, that might not be an important relationship. The next subway stop, they leave. But like with a friend, with a partner, with a business partner, there's constant information and energy going back and forth. Being able to identify and put words to some of this information is useful for both of you to make the the unit more powerful. The mm. It's not about your success versus the other person's success. And it's not about what you're getting, what you want versus the other person, because then the relationship becomes transactional. Yeah. It's about the unit as a whole moving forward in yeah. every situation. So yeah. then again, the subway one, the best thing for the unit is you just let them get off the subway when they need to get off the subway. But in a marriage, it's different or a business partnership. Yeah, I often say to people that it's not you versus the other person, it's both of you versus the problem. And yeah. It's looking at it that way and just taking that observer standpoint and taking out the actual issue, the actual disconnect or whatever it may be, whether it's business or personal, and recognizing that you have to think like that in a relationship. Because if you are looking at it, me versus that person, that means someone's got to lose. As soon as someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. Whereas if it is both of you against the problem, then the right team is winning, right? Or has an opportunity to. Yeah, like I have a I have a business partner on my investment stuff. So I have a lot of different activities. And on yep. my angel investing, I have a same business partner for 19 years. So that means- That's a long time. It's a long time, but it also means I've lost him an enormous amount of money. Like I've lost him a lot of money, which he could say, you've lost me all this money. And then there have been other times where an entire year, I would just not show up for whatever I had to show up for because I was going through a divorce, or I was depressed or whatever. But I also play my role, which is I tend to find a lot of the opportunities and ideas. So I've made, uh, you know, we've made a lot of money as well. And, but sometimes it's years of one thing and then years of another thing where if anybody, if either of us were keeping score, you know, we our, our partnership would have ended year one. Mm. So instead of 19 years later. Absolutely. And you touched there on, on experiencing things like depression. I've heard you speak before about your uh, facing anxiety, et cetera. And what, what I'm fascinated by was how you described it, of how you've been trying to create a life of joy versus playing chess with your demons. When have you had to really like, to, to create that joy, actually had to face your demons front on and actually deal with them? I mean, unfortunately, many times, but I'll take one time yeah. specifically, uh, you know, I have two daughters. I mean, there's so many ways. A lot of it relates to my, you know, fear of, I had this big fear that if I ran out of money, that meant I was dead. So, cause I, cause I equated my self-worth with my net worth, particularly after I sold my first company. And since then I've sold three or four more, but even after the third or the fourth or whatever, but uh, I don't even know which story to tell. I can tell a million stories, <laughs> but- Tell which everyone comes to mind first. Uh, you know, I would say there was the final time, and I, I can't say final, cause it's always an ongoing thing, but. There was one time Latest. I, I, I was day trading, and this is not so long ago, really. Maybe this was like 2009, 2010. And I had a bad day day trading. I lost money. And I was thinking, ugh, is this still happening? Like, am I still worried about everything? Like, how am I going to take care of my kids? How am I going to live? How am I going to make money? You know, it was yet another time where nobody was returning my calls. It was still years away from 
my angel investments paying off. You know, people don't realize about angel investing. They think, oh, this is the key to success. But, you know, if you invest in a good company, the good companies take the longest to pay off because yeah. they keep on being good mm-hmm. until they mm-hmm. sell. Mm-hmm. So the, the bad companies disappear quickly. The good companies grow, you know, you might have to wait nine, 10 years before, you know, there's an opportunity to pay off. So, so I was just like depressed, lonely, scared. And I thought to myself, okay, I really do have this sense of what works on the way up and what doesn't work on the way down. I need to, I need to just surrender. I need to really have this um, mentality of surrender where I can't really control how I'm feeling right now about losing money. I can't really control uh, what's going to happen. You know, I can't force, you know, XYZ company to be sold to another company. I can't force the economy to do well. I can't force all these massive, massive things that I felt needed to go in my favor in order for me to do well. But what I can control is my physical health, my emotional health, like who I'm I'm spending time with, my creative health, like am I constantly creative and coming up with ideas because that will lead ideas morph into opportunities ultimately. You can't have opportunities if if you're sick in bed. You can't have opportunities if you're constantly yelling at your romantic partner or your friends. You can't have opportunities if you're not constantly generating ideas because no one's gonna call you and say, Jay, I'm gonna make you the, you know, the king of Thailand now. <laughs> like no one's gonna give you that opportunity. You're gonna have to, you have to make your own opportunities and opportunities come from the ideas that you have. And ideas are hard to come up with good ideas. And then finally, spiritual health. No, one's, no one can do that for you. No one can teach you, hey, you can't control the economy or uh, how stocks are gonna go tomorrow or, you know, which companies are gonna flame out. You could just kind of make your best do your best and and surrender to the rest. And that's become some of a practice for you, right? Because then you made a list this year of things you didn't want to worry about. Yeah, so so basically every day I just ask myself at the end of the day, did I do the best I can? Did I try to improve with physical health? Like did I eat well, sleep well, move well? Have have I been around good people who who add to my life and started trimming people who don't adds my life or maybe trim people who are toxic. Did I, was I creative today? And the simplest way is that I write down 10 ideas a day. Like they could be bad, they should be bad ideas most of the time, but I'm just exercising that idea muscle. And that I do something for my spiritual health. Like let's say, it doesn't have to be meditation. It could be prayer, it could be bowing down to Allah. It could mm. be surrendering to the force. It could be anything. Mm. And I just asked myself, did I do that today? And then today was a good day. And, um, quoting Ice Cube. And, uh, uh, you know, and then from that, other things are just byproducts. So that creates the energy in you and it builds up this potential energy. And then once you have that, it, 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 byproduct is the kinetic energy that results. The, mm. the, for every action has a-, a Equinox. Yeah, a, a reaction. Mm. And you know, money is among that or friendships or love or, um, you know, other things, anything. Mm. It sounds like you've had so many, at least from my perspective, from what I've read, hearing you today, so many ups and downs, so many inconsistencies. Has there anything that's stayed consistent with you in your experience over all these years? Yeah, it reminds me of, um, you know, there's Peter Thiel writes in his book, uh, uh, Zero to One. 
what important truths would very few people agree with you on? Yeah. And I always ask this to people too, like after reading, I, I, I said, this is Peter Thiel's question. What important truth um, uh, does nobody agree with you on? And everyone thinks and thinks and thinks, but there's a really great answer, which I always give now, which is, my incredible wit and high IQ. Yeah. So that's such an easy answer because I could say it's an important truth to me, yeah. but no one will, ever, no one else seems to agree with me on it. So it's an well, easy answer. Well, maybe they do. Well, maybe they do. No, most people don't. I would. I, I probably would. So, but uh, but my my question is more about consistency because I get fascinated by what does stay the same in all of this change and evolution because we talk so much about growth and evolution and transformation. So I'm fascinated by like if anything, and it may be nothing, which is cool too, but it's like, is there anything that is, has stayed consistent in the way you think or the, what you believe for? I would say there is nothing that has stayed consistent. Wow. And that's the problem. I think consistency is not a bad thing. Mm. It doesn't mean being, it doesn't mean having the same routine every day. It means a higher level of consistency of, of having core values, having this daily pra practice of physical, emotional, mm. creative, spiritual, I would say that became consistent for me starting around 2010 or 2009. And it was only in bits and pieces before then. And I think that's the source really of all my problems is that I wasn't consistent. And of course, problems don't end, right? Like people have problems every day, but what, what gets better when you're consistent is you build this toolkit of solving and dealing with problems. You know, there's the whole saying, which, you know, you know, life happens, but how you, you can't control what's happening in life, but you can't control your reaction to mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what, that's what all of this practice is. That's what a daily practice is. A, a consistent daily practice gives you those tools to react better to life happening around you. Mm. And I think, I think that's what's more consistent for me now and it wasn't consistent for me before. So mm. when things would go bad, I would think, okay, that's it, I'm dead. And now I don't think that. Yeah, no, I, I love that you, you're embracing that point around the importance of consistency because I think we live in a world today where we glorify and idolize extreme ideas when everyone's like, no, you have to be constantly changing because everything's always changing. But it's, from, from my perspective, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, one of my perspectives is that actually embracing the paradox and embracing polarities is far more of a realism of life. Like, I would say I'm as monk as I am media. And I would say that my focus is as about consistency as it is about remaining spontaneous and inconsistent. And for me, it's in that paradox where I'm able to find myself, where I'm able to operate, where I'm able to function. And I would never be able to operate without either extreme. I think that's, I think that's really important because, oh, for instance, when I, when I started writing about like being honest and write, in my writing about all this stuff, everyone thought I was completely insane. Like for instance, all these um, financial people I knew or all these entrepreneurs that I knew, um, or all, even uh, creative people I knew, they were like, they all thought like, are you crazy? Like, how could you admit all this stuff? No one's ever gonna wanna work with you again. And yet I suddenly had more opportunities than ever because I think people realized it's, people at their core realized, oh, that's like me. I have, mm -hmm. I've had problems in life that I didn't know how to deal with. And hopefully I know how to deal with them a little better now. And here's someone who's similar and who's admitting it. And I think that's important. We all have these, you know, I think societally, uh, you know, society is also filled with kind of contradictions, but people are in today's day and age unwilling, you know, everybody kind of takes a side now. Mm. And 
you know, you could either engage in that discussion and it's usually like an angry one, like, oh no, you believe in this, I believe in this, we can't be friends anymore. Or you could say, hey, I'm still gonna be focused on my own flaws and irrational behavior and, and be accepting of it and focus. Again, it's almost like boring a boring mantra for me, but physical, emotional, creative, and spiritual health, and hopefully a little bit of improvement each day in those mm. areas. Mm. And I, and that's what I love about you, that when I've been viewing you and admiring your work, you don't really claim to be anything uh, in, in a good way, I'm saying. as in and, and I quite like that because I think it allows you to be more honest and be more vulnerable in your writing. It, it allows you to be more almost without having to identify yourself as something. Right, like somebody commented on a post of mine recently and said, um, James, how could you, this, this is when I know a post is good, is when someone says this, James, how could you say this? Like you were such a beacon before you wrote this and now <laughs> my whole view of you has changed. And then I know I've achieved something good with my writing because if I'm just the same thing all the time, yeah. then that's boring. Yeah. And it's on them that they're that they liked me before. And what did they like about me before that suddenly they don't like about me now? I can't yeah. control that. And you know, I've always admitted that um, I'm flawed, like maybe everyone else is perfect, I don't know, but you know, you have to kind of acknowledge the flaws in the people, even the people closest to you. Yeah, yeah, but you do it effortlessly. You, you're able to talk about your flaws in a, in not an articulate way, but almost with effortlessness, like your self-awareness is so high. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, or maybe I just write so that it seems that way. <laughs> so I always tell people yeah. where they need me, I'm much less interesting in person than in my stories that I write. No, so, that's not true. That's not true. I don't agree. But, uh, you know, I, one thing is, is that I always tell people who are, who are writing, for instance, don't, don't start off the first paragraph with a lecture. Mm. Start it off with, I was lying in the gutter uh, and, I, and it was raining and I was drunk and cars were coming towards me and, you know, I had to get pulled out of the gutter and then I threw up all over the place. Like just start, start with something like crazy and stupid and embarrassing and then you're off to a good start. What is it about human psychology that, that w warms towards that perspective? Because we've all been there. Right. And we all are ashamed to admit it. Right. And so when someone admits it, it makes us feel more comfortable. Yeah, it gives you permission right. to, you could finally take a breath. You've been holding your breath since that moment that you can't admit, and now you could take a breath. Oh, mm. he just admitted it. That's just like me. Mm. So maybe I could crawl out of this hole that I'm in, or maybe I could admit it also to the people around me. And, and maybe it's okay that it took me slower than I thought or, or that I'm in the be beginning or the middle of a journey that's still going on. Uh, you know, it gives permission in a lot of different ways. But if you just say, if you just say, oh, I'm the greatest basketball player in the world, here's how, who can relate to that? Totally. So Totally. And th but that technique is often used by a lot of, and you mentioned your, your fascination with stand-up comedy, obviously, as well. And it, that technique's often used by stand-up comics, that, that kind of self-deprecating also approach. But we find that often there's so much reality where people are still stuck there. It's almost like they haven't worked through that. Yeah, I mean, a key thing in stand-up comedy, maybe even more important than humor, is likability. Mm -hmm. So when you're watching, let's say you turn on the TV and Dave Chappelle's on the screen, and you say, okay, I'm gonna watch this. You already know his act. You already know that you like him. Everyone in the audience has just paid $500 to see him. They like him. 
So you don't really see, but if you go into like just some dive comedy club, it's a bunch of strangers watching a group of seven or eight comics one after the other go up. Nobody likes each, nobody, it's a contest. Like nobody yeah. yet knows whether to like each other. And so the first thing somebody on the stage, and this applies not just to comedy, but to public speaking, to public speaking when it's strangers, uh, this is a, it, it applies to a meeting where you're selling something, uh, it applies to a negotiation. No one is gonna negotiate with you if they don't like you first. Mm-hmm. And so comedy is a negotiation. You're, you're saying, if I say these things, you're going to laugh. And, but they still have to like you first. Sales, they have to like you first. My first company, I realized this, that nobody was really buying my service, which was making their first websites, because there were other companies out there that were making websites. People were buying me mm-hmm. as a friend, mm-hmm. and they wanted me as, as a friend. And that felt bad at first because I didn't select my customers. They're selecting me, but I didn't have enough confidence to select them. And so sometimes it ended up being friends with people I didn't like because I felt that was the service I was providing ultimately. And then sure, my employees were building their websites, but they... But the their boss, the, the the boss who hired my company was just he just wanted to be friends, yeah. And uh, the the website stuff was kind of a, a byproduct of that. And so again, likability is is important, and and self deprecation is is part of that, and it's also part of well, look at take Harry Potter, the book Harry Potter. You don't see him as a wizard in the beginning. You see him as a bullied little nerdy kid scarred whose parents hate him and he lives in a closet like that's how harry potter starts not with wizardry and amazing things it's literally this scarred kid in a closet and that's how it starts yeah you know i was just talking to someone about star wars yesterday it doesn't start off with yoda like controlling the universe with the force it starts off with a whiny little kid Mm. whose aunt and uncle won't let him fly into space and he doesn't and and he doesn't even try he doesn't even fight back he's like oh okay like he even whines in his voice yeah, yeah. and until finally his aunt and uncle are killed and he, he doesn't shed one tear and he just immediately goes off into space afterwards yeah yeah so absolutely and and that's all the stories right and that it's it's beautiful when that is a authentic telling of one's journey as opposed to a manufactured approach yeah. to sharing so, one's story. So that's the key and that's yeah. what happens. So that's so so being self-deprecating unfortunately is only one half the puzzle or else mm-hmm. everybody would be a great artist or a great comedian or a great salesman or a great negotiator. The second half of the puzzle is you have to be authentic mm-hmm. and telling your personal truth. Um you can't go on stage, for instance, and tell a bunch of jokes about what it's like to be 300 pounds if you're 140 pounds. Yeah. So the audience, it's, they're going to be like, is he putting himself down? But he's not really yeah. 300 pounds. Yeah. Now, that's an obvious one. But there's a saying, you know, in any kind of performance, the audience is an x-ray machine. Mm-hmm. So on much more subtle issues, the audience can tell if you're telling, if you're, if you're being truthful, if this is a personal truth about yourself, or are you just doing like some sort of hack job and trying to get them to like you mm-hmm. and, and not really being truthful or honest about it. Mm. You touched on something really powerful for me that, that you just said, I'm going, I'm rewinding back to it because you said that we all like being liked, but then we have to become selective about who likes us. 
Yeah. And and that's a fascinating, like, again, uh, a mind trick because we all like being liked. When someone likes our posts or likes us, then we immediately default tend to like them back because we love the process of being liked. How do we switch out of that and actually become more selective? I don't think you really can. Oh, wow. uh, okay. I think, well, well, first off, there's two parts to your question, mm. uh, or not really two parts, but the, your, your first part was, we like being liked. You can't get rid of that. Definitely. Because that's just that. neurochemicals. And we shouldn't get rid of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's just neurochemicals, and we're tribal animals. And every tribe in every primate, you know, species goes from alpha to omega. And you always have a sense of whether you're closer to alpha or, or, or whether you're moving closer to alpha or moving closer to omega. And the more people who like you, the more you're moving towards alpha and the dopamine spikes up and you feel happy. Um, and the question is how addicted you get to overwhelming bursts of dopamine. And, you know, that's an addiction. So, so that's an addiction that for better or for worse, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, social media feeds it. Like, I'm, you know, I used to post an article and like I knew exactly to the number if the article was doing good based on if an hour later I had so many likes and so many views and so on. And uh, I had to, you have to really sort of be aware of where your addiction is being triggered and and teach yourself not to care as much. And so when it comes to then customers and friendships and so on, you just have to decide, does this person have the kind of values that I have and I wanna be around them and, and I wanna to get to know them better and, um, uh, you know, I want to be, I, I'm willing to be friends with this customer. So yes, this will be a great partnership. And then by the way, it'll make you a better salesman. Like if you genuinely like the person you're dealing with, you're going to come up with more ideas for them. They're going to come up with ideas for you and things will work out better. So that's mm -hmm. on business. And of course, the same thing applies to romance or friendship or even creativity. Like if you're, um, if you're doing an act of creativity that people like and you and you start to feel that dopamine surge you could take you you can acknowledge it and then take a step back and say okay but i still have to focus on the quality of the work yes i want people to like it but i i can't get i can't get carved into one area where i know everyone's going to like it because they liked it before i have to always be creative and break out of my comfort zone and see what people like and what people don't like and I have to be willing to not have that dopamine hit every single time. You know, some people get so addicted that let's take in comedy, they say the same jokes every time for years. Or let's say in, you know, performance, they always want to play the same type of act, you know, character. Or let's say in sales, even they use the same techniques and tricks, you know, when it might not be appropriate all the time. Yeah. Because they, they know it's an, the easiest way to get that dopamine hit. Yeah. And that's where that consistency element goes wrong. Yeah. That's where that consistency fails us eventually. Yeah, because if you think, okay, I made $10 million, now I need to make 20 million more to get the same dopamine hit. Well, you've just, you're, you're, that's the first step. You're about to lose the first 10 million. Yeah, exactly. And like we were saying earlier, I was mentioning to you how apps have become smarter in making sure we get bigger dopamine hits by giving us all of our likes and follows in one big go. So before, if you had, two likes on Instagram, it would show you two, and then the next minute it would show you eight, and now it puts 10 together, or it puts 100 together, because that dopamine is stronger, so then it makes you wanna come back more often. So it's it's crazy how we can get wired in so deep. 
Yeah, and it's really hard to get out of that. Like mm-hmm. you were saying, you were sharing some advice. So have you been working on getting out of it yourself? I think I think the key is to not. I think the the key is to be. I I don't like the word minimalist because usually people think minimalist means um, fewer objects around you, but it could also mean fewer times you check your computer and your cell phone. Mm-hmm. Like be a minimalist that way. It could mean fewer decisions you have to make. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole kind of famous Steve Jobs, like he wore the same clothes every every day. He just had mm-hmm. like five black turtleneck sweaters. And so, but it was a minimalist of decisions he had to make because mm. you get decision fatigue mm-hmm. or you get dopamine fatigue um, and then messes with your brain. Mm. And even with friendships, you know, it's good to have a diverse group of friends, not the same kind of friends. And, but you don't want to have like 500 friendships because then your social calendar is going to be too busy. You know, two or three really good friends, five pretty good friends and, you know, and then some acquaintances. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. This is, this has been one of those conversations for me that has got me thinking so much. Like I, I almost need to listen back to this and listen to a lot of the things you said because they've sparked so many different inspirations for me personally. You know, I, nice. I, I often have to reread my own mm. book or books uh, to, to remind myself of my advice yeah. or not really advice, but stories and how I got through them and just to kind of keep track and make sure I'm still consistent, yeah. you know, cause I'll forget my, my own advice. Yeah, but yeah. I, I love how when I'm listening to you, even though you're a writer, your, your writing style or at least speaking style and sharing style is just so, honest isn't even, doesn't even quite cut it. I'm trying to find the right word. It's just, it's so as it is. And you almost haven't storified your own story, which I like. Uh, what do you mean Which by storified? I, I feel like we live in a world now where, where we tell stories for the sake of telling stories. Like it's like you have to make everything in your life into a story because that's the only way people listen. Whereas I'm listening even though I don't feel you've done that in, in, a, in a positive sense, I'm saying. That yeah. often everything feels like a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what we hear today or at least what I experience feels like an ad or feels like I've been put into some sort of NLP storytelling practice. And I'm just like, all right, like, you know, where's this going? Whereas... Whereas when I'm listening to you, I kind of feel like, wow, like here's someone who's, who's really lived, who's really experienced, who's, who has really thought about it. And it's okay with, with it kind of getting it wrong sometimes and getting it right sometimes. Well, that's just it. A story doesn't have to have a good ending. Some stories are tragedies. Mm. You know, some stories are comedies. Some stories are dramas. So there's different types of stories. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, I do think, though, storytelling is the best way yeah, to, I agree. to communicate. So the other day, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Yeah. So the other day, uh, <laughs> after I, after everything I just said, you don't know. I'm other, joking. I, I'm loving the way you tell stories. The, the other day, I I was playing poker at the uh, Clinton Foundation. Was holding an annual yes, poker tournament, yeah. and um, everybody. I had never met Bill Clinton before, and everyone always says this one thing about him. Whenever I read about him, or whenever I talk to people who have met him, they always say, "Oh, he's got the most amazing charisma of anybody in the world. He always makes you feel like you're the most important person in the yeah, world." I've heard that. And right, so you've heard that. It's like a common thing about mm. him. And I kept thinking to myself, what does that mean? Does he like stare at you and like hypnotizes you in some way? Or he like hugs you and like asks you lots of questions about yourself so you feel really important? And so here I am meeting him and here's what it is. I've realized what, it, what is his charisma because it's amazing. 
he's he, he's kind of soft spoken a little bit. Maybe that's his age. Maybe he wasn't always that way. I don't know. And then he, so he's leaning. You have to lean in close, and and he just tells you a story. He's like, you know, he'll say that reminds me of you know my buddy. He's like blood to me, and he told me the same thing you just said. And here's what it was. And then he go he tells a story about his friend, and now you're part of his circle of friends. And so you really do feel like. Am I now Bill Clinton's friend? Yeah. Like, am I, is Bill going to come over for dinner tomorrow? <laughs> like, you start thinking that. And that is, the, I think, the, I think storytelling in these kind of like soft-spoken ways is, this, is the secret to his charisma. Yeah. Now, okay, then you have to sit, then you have to be uh, uh, discerning enough to determine is that, you know, some people are better at it than others. And is he truly Am I truly the most important yeah. person in the world? Is he really coming over for dinner tomorrow, or is this just his way? You know, yeah, and uh, yeah. and then that you know, then there's a spectrum there. And th and then that's where that energy is real, where you can feel that genuineness, yeah, that, that authenticity and that sincerity, where you're like, yeah, okay, he's not coming over for dinner, but he meant it when he said it. Yeah, you know that that intention, that that conscious energy was was sincere. I, I hope yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, so no, I have no idea. We never know. We never know. Yeah. Like someone yeah. could be so skilled at it. Like I have a lot of, yeah. you know, like performers and actors and so on on my mm -hmm. podcast. And and I get overwhelmed by them. Like, oh my gosh, we're, we're getting along so great. But this is their job is to get along great with me. Yeah. And so you never really know. And um, But again, I do think uh, the best, it's really sincere and it's really authentic. And I do think people deep down know when you're not being authentic and sincere and so on. So I think that's, I think that's key. I think you have to say yes to the things. You know, I was thinking about this recently. What do you say yes to and what do you say no to? Because you can't say, you know, when you're young, you have to say yes to more things. But when you're older, you have to say no to more things. And so one way to judge whether to say yes or no to something is um, the same principles that help determine how much well-being and contentment you have in life, which are what I'll say yes to something if it improves my emotional connections with the people in my life, if it improves my sense of mastery of that I'm improving in something that I mm -hmm. love doing, or and if it improves my freedom in the world. So will more of my decisions uh, be decisions I make as opposed to decisions someone else makes for me? Yeah. And so those three criteria, if it meet, meets those, then I'll say yes to something. Like let's say a speaking engagement or going on your podcast or writing a story or you know creating a business or marrying someone or going out with someone or being a friend. You can use those three criteria yeah. to, uh, to say determine yes or no. Those are great. And, and I think everyone needs to create their own. Like everyone needs to create their criteria of how yeah. they decide. Absolutely. I love that. Awesome. James. This has been an incredible conversation. I ev end every interview with my final five. It's the final five minutes of an interview. We do some sort of a quick fire, rapid fire round. Okay. So these are shorter answers, usually one to three words. With you, I could even, I'm, I'm going to tempt myself. My quick fire may not be five. It may be seven. It may be 10. I don't know. We'll see how it goes because I have so many quick questions I have but, to ask you. But, but you just made me think of a question. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, when you said final five, it reminded me of yeah. the, Chris Rock movie, the top five, right. but I'm going to shift his top five question a little bit. Who are the top five people that have inspired you on your journey? Okay. I want to know. Top five people? Yeah. Uh, so I'd say uh, one of the first ones is my teacher, Radhanath Swami. 
He's, he's been a monk for the last 40 years. How can I figure out who, who he is? Like, uh, where, where do I? So, oh, I can, I can give you his book. I'll have it sent to you. Okay. Yeah, I can have his, have his book sent to you. What's he's, the book called? Uh, it's called The Journey Home. Okay. And he's, a, he's someone who grew up in Chicago and hitchhiked across the world at the age of 19 in search for the truth and ended up in India. And so his, his story is a truly remarkable story of a genuine seeker of truth, a genuine seeker of spirituality and the self. And he's someone who's hugely inspired my life because the amount of times I've spent with him, he's the same, whether he's with you individually or whether he's with a million people or whether he's the, with the president of the United States, all of with, with which he's been, he just is able to maintain the same level of demeanor, qualities, abilities. So his characteristics have always been something that I've admired uh, and looked up to. Mm. So he's one of them. Uh, the second one is someone that I feel personally mentored by, even though I never met him, was Steve Jobs. Uh, I've tried to read everything that I could possibly could about him. And unfortunately, I don't know many people who knew him, but simply by reading about him and hearing about him and trying to connect as deeply as I can with all of his content, it's been a huge inspiration in my life in in many, many ways. Uh, the The most simple way I can put it is, at one point in my life, I listened daily to his Stanford commencement speech, hmm. the famous one, and I listened to it every single day. And the amount that speech in itself has helped me switch off from the noise of other people's opinions in my life, uh, that in itself has been an incredible, incredible inspiration. I, I met him once, actually, wow. okay. when I was Here in we college. Go. Finally. When okay. I was in college, I was, uh, and, and he was... He was at Next Computer right, and yes, he was yes. delivering a bunch of Next machines to where I went to school. And so he was there to commend, you know, to give the gift of all these Next machines. And he is like unbelievably charismatic. Like okay. you just you just wanna be like it's like a it's like a tractor beam. He's like calling you in. Yeah. So Amazing. So that's two. That's good to know. That's two. Uh the third one again, never never met him, but hopefully I can because he's still alive, is Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, who's the famous football player or soccer player. The reason being that I grew up a huge football and soccer fan growing up in London, but also just because of his extreme work ethic. So I feel like there are people that are naturally gifted and then there are people who work and build and create a life that facilitates their dreams. And he's someone who's probably gifted, but definitely the latter as well. There's a famous story of him, which which helps explain who he is to you. I'm not sure you have any context no. of, of who he is. Uh, he was at one point the most expensive player on the planet and a player that beat him in how expensive he was came to the club and said that on his first day, this other player, his name is Gareth Bale, he says on his first day of training, he thought he would show up to the club early to show the manager that he was serious, even though he's the most expensive player in the world. He was like, I want to show the manager I'm serious. So he turned up three hours early to training. This is four years after Cristiano Ronaldo has joined that club. Cristiano Ronaldo was there four hours early that day. Mm. And that's his work ethic to me is just constantly inspiring me and motivating me to, to realize that that's, that's really what it takes to be at that level. Do you think no matter how gifted you are, you have to have that level of work ethic to be the best? There's no way to be gifted enough to be the best, I think. I, I, can, I can agree with you more. And I think we see that. I think we see natural talents, especially in sports, I, I, I view it more, where people are natural, raw talents. And they don't reach those peaks because they didn't take it seriously. Enough. Right. And, and then they fall off. So I've seen it mostly in sports, but I think it's, it's pretty common across the board. So yeah, he'd, he'd be my third one. Uh, five, this is good. Uh, the fourth one would probably be, I'm trying to think of another individual that I think, uh, the fourth one would probably be the monk who introduced me to Radhanath Swami. Uh, I can tell you about him too. He's someone who is just, he's the first monk that I met that inspired me to be a monk. 
He went to IIT, which is the Indian Institute of Technology, MIT of India, a gold medalist, turned down jobs at some of the best places to become a monk. He's by far the one of the smartest people I've ever met, but also someone who's been able to live through service. And I've never seen someone so smart want to dedicate their life simply to service and be constantly able to reinvent himself. I spoke to him last year. And even though he's a teacher and respected by thousands and thousands and thousands of people, he was like, I've got so much wrong. And he was telling me about exactly what he'd gone wrong 10 years ago that he didn't recognize. And now he's trying to rectify. So his constant ability to reinvent himself, self-develop and and be reflective despite the amount of adoration and success he's had is phenomenal. And the fifth person I'd say is probably my wife. Uh, she's uh, good she, answer. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Uh, Probably my wife because I I met her at a time where like I'm like the bad guy who has tried to become good. I've I've always been a rebel my whole life. I I've always been on the other side of good and I've I've worked my way towards the towards the good side and it's taken a lot of lot of work. Whereas my wife's almost I feel like been a saint her whole life, extremely uh, pure-hearted. Uh, How did you guys meet? Choices. We actually met because I, when I left, I used to teach her uh, meditation philosophy as part of a group that I used to teach. Uh, in so London. you me tooed her. Sorry. Yeah. So basically. Me- basically. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna uh, own up to that. But she's now a better meditator than me. So I guess I was a good teacher. Huh. Good. Uh, but but yeah, she's just someone who, in all of our relationships, I think exudes the best energy. I know that. Whenever we're out together and I connect my friends and family or anyone to her, they're they're always uh, more more interested in her than they are in me. And and yeah, she's she's someone who's a great partner, tolerates me a lot, and and it's able to deal with a very extreme husband. You know, I'm I'm a super extremist, and I'm pretty sure that's not easy to deal with. So that's, that's a good that's a solid top five. Yeah, and that sounds like okay. it's consistent too, right? Like that's consistently your top five. Yeah, I think so. Those are consistently at the top. I mean, there are, I mean, I didn't mention Einstein and uh, Einstein's the center. And you mentioned Einstein a lot in your videos. And Einstein's the center of my world from an ide- ideology point of view. I just, I feel he's someone who is able to bring together spirituality and science. He has that paradox in him. He was able to be intellectually curious, but then deep in data. You know, he, I love that about Einstein. And yeah, so Einstein, without a doubt, I would say is, I mean, he's in the center of my wall. I'd 100% put him in the top five, but... I wanted to give you people that you may not have heard of too. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to add people to that list. Uh, but yeah, those are probably my top five. Excellent. Can I do my top five on you? Are your questions? Questions, yes. yeah, yes. yeah. They're not yeah. that question. So my, my first question is this one, which I love. You made a list of things you didn't want to worry about in 2018. On that list was money, politics, other people's opinions, the future and pleasing others. My first question is what are the, on the list for 2019? Money, <laughs> politics, uh, I don't want to worry about people liking me and I don't worry, want to worry about pleasing others. Um, and the future. <laughs> uh, you know what? I do think about the future because I think about my kids. You know, my kids had some some issues this year and I, I do think about them and I think about the future. Okay. So uh, with them. And uh, uh, yeah. And I don't want to worry about, I think the pleasing someone who is not appreciative of it that has gone up in value for me, not wanting to worry about that. Mm. Uh, you know, the rest are, are the same. And by the way, 2018, I'm not saying I succeeded at those things. Sure. I want to improve on them for 2019. Well, you said them again. So yeah, so, yeah. definitely. No, I love those. And I, and I thought it was a really interesting thing to have that. I think we focus so much on goals, but we don't focus on what we don't want. 
And and sometimes it's what we don't want that creates the space. So yeah. I, I think I, I really like that approach. So anyone who's listening and watching, make a list of things you don't want to be bothered by in 2019. I love that. Uh, second question I have for you is, uh, what's the best advice you ever received? Hmm. I think the best advice I've ever received, uh, you know, when you do podcasts, right? You do so many podcasts with so many great and inspirational people uh, that I forget. I, I feel bad that I don't have like an amazing memory where I can remember everything they've said. Um, but sometimes I guess what stands out is has had an effect. So it's just going to sound kind of like an, an, an odd one, but I've thought about it a lot. Uh, Scott Adams, who's the creator of the comic strip Dilbert, he said to me, uh, my life became, a, you know, a lot better and I became a lot happier once I realized that 99% of people were completely irrational. <laughs> and so I just think that's, uh, that's yeah. a good thing to think about, particularly when you're dealing with a lot of these issues, like what do people think of you? Why, are, why isn't, why am I keeping score in a relationship? Mm. Or uh, why isn't, why aren't I pleasing this person? Or, um, you know, the future that I can't control because of all these factors that, you know, involving people. Uh, it helps uh, to think, you know, that, that it's true. Most people, including me, are probably irrational most of the time. And that makes sense. Otherwise, the, if everybody was rational, like everyone always thinks they're rational. But if everyone was rational, why is the advertising agency, uh, advertising business, a $300 billion a year industry? Mm-hmm. Like, they, they're trying, they're spending that money for a reason because they know they can, they can, that your free will is not as rational as you think, that they can manipulate it. Mm-hmm. So that's why all these companies exist, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's why every ad agency exists. So, uh, you know, so it makes sense. And I guess, I guess the other thing is, um, I don't know. That might, uh, no. I think the other, I think in general, uh, always keeping beginner's mind yeah. is, is important you know, it's a big Zen uh, yeah. concept. Absolutely. Third question, what's the worst advice you ever received? Um, I, I don't think I've ever gotten bad advice. Oh, that's amazing. And I'll say it because I don't blame anyone nice. for anything bad that I've done. Like I take, of course, somebody's told me to, oh, you gotta buy this stock, man. It's gonna go up tomorrow. <laughs> and I bought it. And I could say that's bad advice, but you know what? It wasn't like he was doing his thing or she was doing her thing. And I'm the one who made the action. So I got to take ownership of, of, of my decisions. And so I can't really say anybody's given me bad advice that I couldn't have just simply dusted off and and ignored it. Nice. Question number four, uh, what's a mantra you live by or, or something that you repeat to yourself often or something that's kind of stayed at the forefront of your mind when you're making big decisions or choices? Uh, I think it's a couple different things. You know, one is I've repeated several times in this podcast, how at the end of the day, did I improve Mm -hmm. or work on, you know, physical health, emotional health, creative health, spiritual health. I love that. And the other thing is, am I making a decision because of it improved my connection with people, my uh, uh, attempts at improving at things that I love and my sense of autonomy or freedom. So, you know, remembering those every time I have a crucial decision, particularly regarding how I spend my time, I think that's important to mm. me. And I and I think it's also useful to remember when I pass people, uh, they're going through hardships too. Mm. And I remember I met somebody 
So I, I published the book with Hay House, which is like a self-help yeah. publishing company. And I was having lunch with their head of book acquisitions. And she told me she had just come back from this retreat with the Dalai Lama. And I said, well, what, what, what's it like to meet him? And she said, uh, it feels like everybody he looks at, he's thinking, this is my daughter. And so I've tried this exercise, just walking down the street, just imagining everybody, like an old man, a you know, homeless person, this person, that person, this is my daughter. And you do feel differently. You do yes. react differently to them. What's creepy is when it's actually a little girl you're passing <laughs> and you're smiling at that person, this is my daughter. You can't do that. <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. But in general, that's been, been kind of a thing that I repeat to myself when I walk around in the street. Yeah. And that's, a, that's actually a very monk principle that, that we were trained to, to see people as either your, women or, uh, your mother or your daughter. Mm. So you were able to build that respect for women. So rather people often think that monks are against women or see women as less, et cetera. It's actually the opposite. It's actually, how can I see these women with higher forms of respect? And, and, and it's tricky too when you say the same thing about men. This is totally. my daughter yeah. about some homeless man. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. that works too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 was once, um, I was once going out with somebody who just didn't believe me that I would do this. That's stupid that you do that. I don't believe you do that, but it actually really works. Like I yeah. encourage, and I don't always remember to do it, but it works when I do it. Yeah, and I, I ask a lot of a lot of men to try and do it with how, how they deal with women in the sense of just like, I have a younger sister who I've almost dealt with as my daughter in many cases in the sense of how I see her and how I take care of her and how, how protective I am. And I've always looked at, tried to look at my relationships with women in the same way as like, well, that's someone's daughter. Like, how does that, impact how i treat them well or how does that, that impact how i yeah and that's work. a good way to do decision making so mm -hmm. let's say you're so th this has happened to me in relationships where and this has been my therapist advice to me um i would i would be like oh like oh this is what happened this week you know so and so said this to me you know what should i do and my therapist would say well imagine your daughter calls you up and she says daddy my boyfriend just said this to me yeah what would you tell her and then I would say, break up with him. Like, that's crazy. Mm. And it, so it, so I know how to be a parent and I know how to be like a business partner. And sometimes relationships are hard. But so my therapist was great, was at finding the analogies where I would be able to have an instant answer. But it was really the same question. Yeah, absolutely. So. I love that. And and fifth and final question, I, I often don't say this, but and, and I'm hoping that even though this is the first time we've met, I'm hoping it's going to turn into a lifelong friendship because I've, there, there's something about you that that I deeply find endearing and admire. Oh, well, and, thank you, Jay. And, as I, I feel the same way. <laughs> well, but you know, here's the thing, though. Yeah. A lot of times on the podcast, people say, "Oh, next time I'm in the city, we have to hang out." Yeah. And then I never hear. We I text them like, oh, yeah. Yeah, "I see you're in the city," and they just never. You have to respond. You have well, to contact me when you come well, to New York. Well, I was going to go a step further. <laughs> I was going to go a step further. I was my fifth and final question is actually like I. I feel like as, as we get to know each other more, there may be areas in my life that I think you'd be an incredible mentor for me. And, and I'd love, as my fifth and final question, to ask you for any words of guidance, advice that you have for me, having seen my work, uh, connected with me today, and been so incredible to me. I'd, I'd love to ask you for any advice, anything that comes to your mind that you may believe would be useful for someone like me. Well, I don't know. If I, I mean, you've done a really good job of doing what you do. And... Uh, I've watched a lot of your content. And by the way, I'm amazed at how well produced your videos are. You must have a team like editing stuff and so on. So it's like everything you do seems like 
super high quality, super thoughtful. Um, so I don't know. I would say maybe just don't share ideas as much as stories sometimes. Sometimes you don't have to be, you know, Jay who's sharing, you're, you're brilliant and you have great advice. And I always, you always have unique insight that I'm like, huh, that wasn't just some sort of BS self-help aphorism. <laughs> Thank you. It actually was unique and, and I'm going to follow it. But it would also be like, you know, I want to see you dirty a little bit. And, uh, okay. uh, but that's just, that's just how I, again, it's sure. like I'm saying how I, I would do it if I were you, but you have generated more views on your content than I have. So who am I to talk? So well, that's, not a just try it. I maybe. love it. Yeah. So, I'm going to find out what dirty means. That's, <laughs> that's going to be fun to unpack with you, but go on a subway yeah. and, and have someone videotape you secretly. Um, and do the same things you say in your well-produced videos and figure out how to say it to the subway car. Ooh. Okay. And because it, it's going to be scary and they're going to look at you like, is this guy going to ask me for money or is this guy weird? And uh, and you have to commit to, <laughs> to doing it in the same passion and vigor you do it on those videos. Okay, awesome. I love it. Let's let's see what... And the video tape will be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it will be fun for everyone else for sure. Yeah. No, I love it. James, thank you so much. Thanks, Jay. For coming on the show. I appreciate I'm so it. grateful. I'm, I'm excited for our next... I just feel like we've literally... And I'm not just saying this, and I don't say this on everybody. I literally feel like there's so many more things I could talk to you about, but I'm excited to to rethink, re-listen to this, and then come back at you with more. So yeah, let's continue the conversation. Yeah. Well, we know you're going to be in New York in the next Some few months. Point. Come on uh, the podcast, and yeah. um, and then let's have dinner afterwards. I'd love that. Thank Excellent. you so much, James. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks.